I am not sure this will form some kind of coherence. I shall never know, for these words shall be my last. It was in the year of our Lord, 1888, that I was employed at Carrington and Sons General Store. Now more than 15, I had procured the job thanks in large part to my father. A handshake, a slap on the back, and I was employed as assistant to Mr. William Carrington, the third of his name. The second of that name, that is to say, the elder Mr. William Carrington, a hunched-back, ornery man who was more wont to dribble spittle out his slack-jawed mouth than say a kind word, had long given up the day-to-day -day management of the shop. So it was up to the younger Bill Carrington and myself to make sure the shelves were fully stocked, the customers content. Thankfully, the shop hours were easy, and Bill was a decent man. He gave me an extra nickel a week when he reckoned I had earned it. He even employed a confederate to work in the stockroom, a fine old man whom we called Franklin, though I do not believe that was his true name. He had been born somewhere in Alabama, though he never said where. I am certain he had fought against the Union during the war, but that was in the past. He was quiet and kind. After hours, he would sometimes sneak me a sip of the gin he carried in his flask. The women who frequented the store would smile at me, especially the older women who never forgot what it was to be young. I would smile back, say sweet things, if only to secure a penny at the end of the sale. I would always save my broadest smile for Florence Wright. Most considered her a plain girl, but I always thought her striking. She would meet my eyes, and the corner of her lips would curl up when she said my name. It always sent my stomach a flutter. Whatever money I earned that did not go towards necessities, I saved for my dream of becoming an artist. Traveling from town to town with the canvas, oils, and brushes, painting up portraits for families with more coin than cents. I was able to purchase a small number of canvases, and Bill let me order paints from our supplies, deducting the cost from my pay. Though, he always took less than he was owed. Some nights I would sit up by candlelight and work on portraits of our clientele, but mostly of Florence. I look back on those times with warmth. They were good. They did not last long enough. It was March when Franklin stopped coming to work. Living so many miles outside of town, this wasn't much of a concern as the roads were nearly impassable during the late winter snowstorms. But when the ice thawed in April and Franklin was nowhere to be found, Bill grew concerned. He planned to venture out to check on Franklin when the elder Carrington pressed him not to, saying, no federate was worth a northerner's time. He then wiped the spittle from his lips before scuttling back to his office at the back of the store. After his father had gone, Bill shook his head, put his broad, calloused hands on my shoulder, and asked me to work the stockroom until he could find the extra help. He would pay me an additional 20 cents a week for my troubles. The stockroom sat directly beneath the store, dug out by the first Carrington just after Independence. The ground and the southern wall were still simply packed dirt that was damp to the touch, no matter the season. Two small windows on the northern stone wall let in the barest amount of light. One of the windows had blown out during one of the winter's storms, and a mound of snow had piled up beneath. Bill said to leave it for the warmer weather to melt. 
the frequent skittering of rats' feet against the dirt, a chattering of teeth as they tried to gnaw their way through our stores. It was nothing I hadn't heard on the farm, yet it managed to send chills down my spine. I often found myself rushing in and out of the cellar, the hairs standing on the back of my neck. Still, the additional work wasn't so difficult, lifting a box here, placing it there. I found by the end of the first month my arms had gotten larger and stronger, which seemed to make Florence's smile wider the next time she saw me. By the middle of April, the snow in the cellar had retreated enough to reveal a small jar of strawberry preserve had shattered sometime during the winter. Were it not for the gash I opened up on my palm while picking out the shattered glass, I would have called it beautiful. I would have painted it. On the first truly warm day in late April, the snow mound melted inches at a time, leaving the dirt floor muddy. On my fourth trip down that day, I noticed something protruding from the mound. My curiosity getting the better of me, I moved closer to investigate. I saw the twig to be a finger, old and calloused, bent as if it was beckoning me forward. And attached to that, a hand shriveling in death. I did not scream. My voice had left me sniveling and shaking. The only utterance I could manage was a high-pitched moan. Bill must have heard me, as he rushed down the steps not more than a minute later. He saw me first, my face so pale that I must have looked a specter. He asked me something, but he sounded muffled and distant, so I simply moaned in reply. His eyes followed my gaze until they fell upon the clenched hand protruding from the snow. Bill fell to his knees, splattering mud into the air as he clawed at the wet snow until he had revealed Franklin's terror-stricken visage. One of Franklin's eyes was glassy and opaque, the other missing entirely. Three long gashes ran down his right cheek. His jaw hung open, trapped in a scream. The left side partially detached, the flesh shredded, his throat had been ripped open. In the dim light, I could make out the white of his neck bones. When we finally were able to free ourselves from our stupor, we inched forward and began the slow, painful task of unearthing our friend. There was little left of Franklin's body. His left side had been torn apart, his innards half-eaten and hanging loose like uncooked dough. Everything beyond his left elbow was gone, the remaining bone nearly stripped of flesh, and what remained hung in ribbons. His legs were blue from the frost, both shortened at the knees. I heaved until all I could spew was bile. I wiped away the traces of vomit with my sleeve, my body shaking more from shock than from the chill. Bill helped me up the stairs to the store over to William Carrington's narrow office, placed me in a creaking wooden chair, and told me to stay put while he ran to find the sheriff. I glanced over to find William Carrington's glassy eyes trained on me as he stuffed chew into his mouth. Black-brown liquid leaked through his yellow teeth as he asked me if the Federate was dead. An hour passed before Bill returned with the sheriff. They left me in the office while they inspected the body in the basement. A short time later, the sheriff shuffled up the stairs, his naturally pale face whiter than paper. His jowls shook when he asked me to relate how I found the body. I answered him in short sentences, never lifting my gaze off my feet. 
Bill closed down the shop that afternoon and took me home. He explained to my father the circumstances for my early return. Bill patted me on the back and called me brave. I could see my father's thin lips quiver when he thanked Bill for bringing me home. My father's calloused hand gripped my shoulder and brought me inside. Days went by before Bill reopened the store. The rumors around town were deafening. There were claims that it had been a bear, while a few souls said it was the Carringtons who had murdered poor old Franklin, stuffed his body into the snow, and sold his flesh as meat to their patrons. It was not without much hesitation that I chose to return to work, but I felt a debt to Bill for telling my father I had been brave. The store sat devoid of patrons most days. Only the most loyal of customers came defying scandal to purvey our wares. With the warmer weather leaching in, the perishables in the shop began to spoil, forcing us to make frequent trips to the basement to replace the rotten food. My skin would always prickle as I inched down the stairs, my teeth chattering in spite of the warmth. I would rush through the stores, never once risking a glance at the shadowed spot under the window where Franklin's body had once sat. It was in the third week after we discovered Franklin's body that I first heard the chittering echoing up from the earthen walls. I whipped my head around, searching for the source of the noise. Just darkness, cold, wet, and crushing. The sound had reminded me of mice whispering as they chewed through wood, but it wasn't that, not exactly. There had been something insect-like to the sound. Cicadas in early morning, a mosquito in your ear. My heart racing, I pushed through the fear and raced back up the stairs, believing it would be the last I would hear of the phantom sound. However, the nightmare quickly proved to be recurring. At the outset, I would hear the sound once a month at most, always from the shadows, as if it were deciding whether it should fully make its presence known. As the spring turned into summer, I began to hear the sound more frequently. Sometimes I felt it inching closer, while other times it seemed to circle me, padded feet pawing against the compacted soil. I debated endless hours whether I should tell the Carringtons, but what would I say? A creature stalked the storage? They would think me mad. Indeed, I often thought myself mad. So I decided to keep the sound secret. It was a mistake I am soon to pay for. In the two months since we discovered Franklin's body, the store became a shadow of its former prestige. The lack of business seemed to affect William Carrington's health. Already a frail man in body, if not in spirit, the elder Carrington had grown weaker. His thin, paper-like skin hung precariously off his brittle bones. Most days he sat slumped at his desk, his yellow eyes glazed over as drool tumbled out of his mouth. It wasn't until William Carrington began soiling himself, the rancid smell suffocating the entirety of the store, that Bill decided it was time his father stayed home. It was the only time the old man showed any sort of life, spitting a large wad of green phlegm onto Bill's shirt when he made the decision known. As the elder Carrington hurled violent insults, the younger looked to me and asked if I could give him and his father a moment alone. With the Carringtons arguing in the office, I went to complete the end-of-day tasks. 
I swept up the floor, rearranged the items on the shelves, and secured what little cash was left in the register back into the lockbox. It was tedious work, all done in an effort to avoid restocking the basement. It was just a matter of storing crates on a shelf in the back of the basement, but even that small matter stopped my blood cold. Standing outside the basement door, I tried to stop my hands from shaking. I drew on every ounce of my pride and courage to unlock the door and inch down the stairs, one step at a time. My heel eventually pressed down on basement floor, sinking down several inches into the muddy floor. I lifted up my foot, but the mud clung onto my shoe and pulled it off. I swore under my breath and tried to ignore the goose flesh that had crawled up my arms and neck. I carefully put my bare foot back on the lower step, placed the crate on the ground, and sat down on the stairs. I leaned forward to retrieve my muddy shoe when I heard the chittering sound from the earthen wall across from me. Not a breath escaped my lungs, nor did a muscle move. My eyes remained on my half-buried shoe, for I didn't dare look up. My body turned to stone as I silently prayed that the sound was only in my mind. There was the delicate sound of a large paw pressing down against the soft earth. Then another. The chittering came again closer than before. I slowly lifted my gaze up toward the source of the sound, my body trembling as I at last lay eyes on the fiend. Its hind legs were like that of a dog or a cat, with three clawed toes at the end shifting earnestly in the mud. A long rat's tail swung from its back. Its flesh was the devil's hide, hairless, crimson, and glistening. I confess, I do not know if there are words to describe the nightmare that hung before me. There is no beast in heaven or earth with a visage like the one I saw. All I could see, all that my mind could truly comprehend, was the glowing red eyes of Satan that stared through to the heart of me. I do not know how long we sat there staring at one another, but I knew without question that this was the devil that had killed Franklin, that had been stalking me in the months past. It cocked its nightmarish head at me, a gesture that seemed almost curious. It was a cat toying with its food, a predator waiting to strike. I let out a slow, stuttering breath and carefully moved my hand to the crate beside me. The mandibles of jaw rubbed against one another, eliciting the chittering sound to which I had become so accustomed. I felt a small bead of sweat trickle down behind my left ear sending a shiver across my body. An irrational thought formed in my mind. Was the demon trying to communicate? Whether this devil had the intelligence of man did not matter. I am, was, flesh, ready for consumption. A meal to be devoured. I tore my eyes away from the beast and grabbed the crate. I heard it moving towards me with a greater speed than I thought possible, and it was only instinct and fear that made me throw the crate at the creature's head. I know, in that instance, it saved my life. 
The corner of the crate struck the creature in the side of its long head, eliciting a pained crackling from its mouth. My feet were moving before my mind decided to, but they were clumsy, knocking into each other and tossing me against the staircase. My hands caught against the steps, driving splinters into my palms, but my body kept moving forward, climbing the steps on all fours. I bounded through the doorway, through the back of the store, my shoeless foot slipping against the floor. I knocked my shoulder against the wall, but kept hurtling forward, willing myself to not look back, fearful that even the briefest glimpse at my attacker would ensure my demise. I raced past the Carrington's office, ignoring Bill's concerned calls, and into the main shop where I stumbled over the counter, knocking over the register, and pulled foot straight out the front door. I ran down the town's main street, down onto the side roads, and didn't stop running until I reached my family's farm. I am not proud of my actions. There was no bravery in them. But I do not ask you for your forgiveness, nor do I feel I require it. I doubt anyone who had seen the demon beneath Carrington's general store would have made any other choice. I survived that night. For two days I remained locked in my room, my rifle in hand, watching the door, watching the windows. My parents' pleas could not rise me from my vigil. It wasn't until the third day, after the sun had reached its apex, that I was pried from my room. My father knocked on the door, a light wrapped of knuckles, a noticeable change from the violent pounding that had filled my days before. He called my name through the door. He didn't ask me to come out, didn't ask me to explain. He simply informed me the Carringtons had been found dead in their store the night before. I wept instantly. I knew without question what had occurred. In my haste, in my fear, I had run out of Carrington's store without considering the fates of my employers at the hands of that demon. I had left them to die. A sequence of events played out before my mind's eye. Bill ever concerned for my well-being would have followed after me, perhaps even attempted to make chase before turning back to deal with his father. Inside, he would have more than likely found the creature devouring the elder Carrington. I would like to believe Bill would have been braver than I, that he would have attacked the demon and attempted to save his father. He would have not run like I had. He would have died fighting, I have no way of knowing for certain. No one in town could say what had killed the two men, though the consensus was the murderer must be the same man who had killed Franklin several months prior, a madman roaming the countryside. I alone knew the truth, and yet I remained silent. How could I explain what I had seen? Who would have believed my tale of a beast from the depths of hell? So I held my tongue. With no other family to tend to the shop, Carrington's was closed down, and stores sold out by the township. I only once risked walking past the derelict building during a rare trip into town. Its boarded-up windows made my heart ache, though fear made my feet move past it without pause. My ears convinced they had heard the demon's tell-tale chittering. 
In the months that separated the Carrington's death and this recording, I barely found the wherewithal to pick up a brush, and even the thought of Florence Wright made me ill. I spent my days helping my father on the farm, and my nights locked in my room, watching the darkness outside my window. I found myself terrified of any divot in the ground, any burrow that my foot might catch while I toiled in the field. Even a rabbit den my father asked me to clear out caused me to break into a panic. Any critter I saw pass through the corner of my eye froze me in place. Any rumble I felt in the ground beneath my feet caused me to run, certain the creature was following me, hunting me, eager to complete what remained unfinished. As the summer cooled into fall, my sister, three years my senior, married and discovered she was with child. As the child's birth approached, my family used what little means they had to celebrate the occasion, inviting friends from far and wide to announce the child's upcoming entrance into the world. And so, earlier this day, folks began to arrive from several towns over. Faces I barely recognized came with names I couldn't remember. I was welcoming, shaking hands when appropriate, smiling when necessary. But my mind, as it always was, was elsewhere. As the party drifted on in hours, my father, always bawdy after several pints, took out his fiddle and began to lead the party in song. I did my best to clap and dance along, but failed to find the spirit within me. I moved to the corner of the room, wrapped my arms around my body, and forced a smile on my face while I watched my family and friends hook arms and dance, their faces alight with celebration and laughter. I wonder... If I would have been moved to join them, but then, then I would not have heard the chittering beneath my feet. Looking down at the wooden floorboards, I saw in between the planks of wood that sat over the dugout basement, that familiar pair of red glowing eyes looking up at me. I do not know if I screamed but the rawness I feel in my throat indicates that I must. I broke away from the party in a blind fury, stumbled up to my room and quickly locked the door behind me. I pulled apart my room, searching for my gun, realizing all too late that I had left it in the barn to be cleaned. I pinched my eyes shut as tears began to stream down my face. And below, the sounds of celebration quickly made way for the unending sound of screams. I knew in that instance all was lost. With little options left, I grabbed the recorder and cylinder you now listen to. But before my words were scratched down, I realized the cries of agony and death had stopped, replaced with the maddening chittering of the beast. I looked out my window and saw the devil's red gaze, its inhuman mouth dripping crimson, and so I began to tell the tale that you have now heard. My eyes locked on the creature as it patiently watches me through the glass. I do not know how much longer it will wait, how much time I truly have left. I know my death is assured, and I have chosen to make my final act to be that of a caution. To let all creation know that devils walk this earth. Perhaps the Almighty will absolve me of my sin of silence, from my sin of fear. Perhaps it will do some good. All I can do is beg the good Lord for forgiveness. And <laughs>
Smoke Without Flame, Episode 103, Testament, written by Adam Lance Garcia, sound recorded by Tyrant Rex, created by Adam Lance Garcia, produced by Steel Philippec, Adam Lance Garcia, and Tyrant Rex, directed by Tyrant Rex and Adam Lance Garcia, featuring the voice work of John Marco Ceresi. For a list of sound effects credits, please go to our website, RadioRoomShow.com. Check us out there for updates, bios, and more episodes of Radio Room. Or follow us on Facebook, on Twitter at Real Radio Room, or on iTunes, Pocket Cast, or on any fine podcast aggregator. For more by Adam Lance Garcia, pick up his graphic novel, Sons of Fire, on Amazon.